Straw Hut Media. Surfing is a process of immersion. You wake up, turn on the coffee pot, and already it's a sensual experience. All of your body senses are turned on. You're smelling the cup of coffee. You're in anticipation of entering into a very, very chilly uh, ocean. Um, your body starts to awaken and come alive in a way that's very different from if you're just going off to work, which is more of a deadened feeling. And so your body starts to come alive in ways that it doesn't for anything else or for anyone else. You get your coffee, you jump in the car, and you turn on your favorite tunes, whatever is going to get you just more fully immersed in this meeting. You open, you open your car door and you're immediately hit with the smells of the ocean, which are this really interesting mix of, of brine and, and life and death and decay and, and growth um, all at once. And there's no other smell on the planet that's like it. So your, your, your senses are engaged. The wind is chilly on your skin. You take off your shoes. You pull off your clothes and you enter into the wetsuit and there's a process of moving from land across this liminal space which is constantly changing. The boundary between land and sea is a no man's land. It's a, it's a nothing land. It's a, it's a land of constant change. And so you enter into from solid, constant land to a completely changing environment in a state of flux. And your passage through the beach or through the liminal space changes who you are and how you are in the world. Because now it's not about your mind, it's not about your emotions, it's a, it's a place of instinct, it's a place of gut feeling, it's a place of the body. You enter into the ocean, as soon as your head goes under and you come back up, you're a completely different being, you're a different creature you harmonize with this ocean. And for those of us who've been doing it for a really, really long time, the ocean meets you in a way that you're recognized. You're actually recognized by something that has a, a completely different consciousness than uh, human beings or animals or plants. And um, that relationship is home in a way that there's no other, um, there's no other way to describe it in surfing, in catching a wave, you're no longer expressing something that is yours. You become an instrument of expression for the ocean and for the energy that has been traveling for months on a sea to reach this one moment, to reach you and your ability to express the line, the energy that is that one wave. To an outsider, mainstream surf culture looks very homogenous. Men with sun-bleached hair, long lean muscles, tan, but not too tan, skin. They hang out with hot girls in bikinis. They shred. They're easygoing, but aggressive. But like every seemingly heteronormative subsection of culture, there's a queer side fighting against the currents of homophobia with all its might. I'm Levi Chambers, and this is Pride. 
one of the definitive sources of mainstream surf culture is Surfer Magazine, which published its final issue in October, after 60 years. So my name is Todd Perdonovich. Um, I am the former editor-in-chief of Surfer Magazine. Todd spent 10 years with Surfer Magazine, the last five as editor-in-chief. If you asked me about surfing culture at different points of my life, I would have completely different answers for you. <laughs> like, my understanding of it, like, changes all the time. But, you know, like, at the core of it, like, I think that there's this kind of false perception that, you know, it's like this kind of like traveling vagabond lifestyle that's very accepting and, you know, uh, kind of the ocean, you know, dissolves all barriers and brings everyone together. But I think that like that's, you know, kind of this like idealistic image that's kind of naive. During his time as editor-in-chief, Todd actively shifted the conversation to include topics that surf culture has mostly ignored homophobia, toxic masculinity, whitewashing. And one of the last features he did for the magazine was about the work that LGBTQ plus surfers are doing to create a more inclusive surf culture. I think that surfing has been built on these stereotypes of a bunch of like, blonde, blonde haired, blue eyed, white, straight dudes, um, you know, and that that's what surfers look like. It's, it's fairly common to talk to lifelong surfers who feel alienated by surfing culture. And I don't know if that exists to that degree in other lifestyle sports or other activities. Todd says that when Surfer Magazine started talking about diversity and inclusivity in surfing, the response was powerful. I got so many DMs from people who were just like, you know, I've never bothered to pick up a Surfer Magazine or I've never felt like I related to surf media at all until you started talking about these things. And that kind of blew my mind because, I mean, we were just starting to have these conversations because it just was very obviously like the right thing to do. And honestly, it, I feel like Surfer as an institution has, has done a lot of damage. And I feel like, you know, we had to start repairing that. Um, but to, to hear these people say how much it meant to them to, you know, see themselves reflected in the content and in the storytelling. Um, I mean, it's like absolutely like the high light of my career to read those messages and to just feel like, I don't know, that maybe these people just feel a little bit more welcome in this culture that should have been welcoming them all along. So what is it about mainstream surf culture that is so alienating? Surf culture in America and, and, and surf culture kind of broadly today is um, largely supported by and created by an industry that makes its money selling clothes. This is Johnny Capetta, co-founder of Benny's Club, a surf collective dedicated to creating a more accepting environment for queer and POC surfers. I'm Johnny my pronouns are they and them. I'm a surfer. Johnny is one of the people Todd interviewed for the feature in Surfer Magazine. With not enough actual surfers in the world to support the apparel lines, brands have to sell to everyone. And you basically end up with the lowest common denominator of like imagery, what sells. Traditionally, the one thing that most marketers and advertisers agree on is that sex sells. More specifically, straight, white, thin, heteronormative sex sells. 
Or so it's assumed. And mainstream surf brands leaned hard into that assumption, defining surf history and culture in really narrow terms and making surfing an unfriendly place for anyone that didn't fit that mold. And it really relies on these tropes of man versus nature. And on top of that, you have um, the pressure of a once niche activity becoming mainstream. You have um, a perception of scarce resources being waves. There's only so many of them per hour. Um, Certain spots only break on certain swells during certain seasons, which adds this sort of like capitalist resource hoarding element into it. You know, there's a lot of localism at especially like the best waves in the world are almost, they almost all have some kind of uh, local presence that, you know, tries on some level to dissuade other surfers from paddling out and from getting good waves. And basically what you end up with is a general idea that surfing belongs to and is dominated by white men. And then in practice, you have um, these groups of largely white men who are doing what they can to protect the resources. Even though localism and territorialism are problems, Todd says those darker elements don't define everyone. I would say they they define like a certain group that tends to have more control at a lot of the better waves. But like most everyday surfers, you know, are just as annoyed by that as anyone. Another aspect of surf culture that tends to keep queer folks out of the water is language. One of the like go-to words, if you want to like talk shit about somebody in the lineup is say they surf like a fag, you know, like that is like, like that's where it's at. And that really prevents people from from feeling comfortable expressing themselves or even trying to surf in a way that looks different than like um, what you see in magazines. Even Todd, as a straight cisgender dude, experienced it. When I was growing up surfing, like you would hear homophobic slurs in the lineup all the time. That was, you know, the most common way that you would hear surfers make fun of each other. Even though Todd doesn't experience homophobic name-calling firsthand often anymore, that's not to say it isn't still happening. Todd says the surfer Glenn Walsh, who was featured in the 2014 documentary Out in the Lineup, still deals with it. And actually, real quick, for all of us non-surfers, what exactly is a lineup? Lineup is just a reference to the sort of like crowd of surfers waiting to take a wave um, out at the spot. And they don't really ever look like lines, but that's the ideal is for lines that you can all take your turn. It's like a little escalator or something. Um, Usually it's just like a big old mob. As for Glenn Walsh, he told Todd that despite being a regular in the Venice surf lineup, he has to deal with homophobia. You know, he told me that this is not something that's just in the past that like when he paddles out, he still gets things, um, you know, yelled at him on occasion. And um, yeah, it's, it's really terrible because I think that it's a lot of people are really quick to just say, you know, you're bringing up something that's not a problem or like, you know, like why, like you're making it an issue by talking about it. But, you know, again and again, with all the people that I spoke to for the piece that that just was clearly not the case you know it's like the problem doesn't go away if you don't confront it it just festers and becomes you know this kind of worse version so despite its reputation as a place for free spirits is mainstream surf culture homophobic i don't think that there's any way for someone 
to argue that it, that it hasn't been homophobic. One surfer that comes to mind when Todd thinks about it is Matt Branson. Who, you know, was this like long haired, like heavily tattooed, like kind of like heavy metal uh, type surfer guy from Australia. Matt Branson waited to come out as gay until 15 years after he had retired. And today, there are only a handful of top surfers who have come out. And so that just kind of goes to show how, you know, a lot of these surfers just didn't feel like they could be themselves. When we come back, what surfers like Johnny are doing to make surfing a more inclusive place for everyone. Welcome back. Today we're talking about the queer side of surfing, and how despite its reputation as a haven for free spirits, mainstream surf culture is exclusive to a fault. And with a culture like that, it's not that surprising that gender nonconforming people would feel unsafe in the lineup. The sort of lack of ability to like hide your birth body, if we can put it that way, um, while wearing a wetsuit or like while wearing a bathing suit makes it really a kind of not, it's an activity that doesn't feel super safe for gender nonconforming people. Um, if you have dysphoria, the last, the body dysphoria, the last thing you want to do is, you know, strip down close to naked. If you're a, if you're a trans person, if you're a, if you've kind of socially transitioned, but you haven't had top surgery or bottom surgery, like the last thing you want to do is like, put on something skin tight to show the world that you haven't, um, you know, that your body's different and trans um, and not because you're not proud or you're not, you're not out, but because it's not safe. Johnny found their gender fluidity after college, after spending most of their life surfing. And even though there haven't been many queer surfers to look up to, Johnny says they did find inspiration in the surfer Travers Adler. He's not queer to my knowledge, but Travers Adler surfs super weird. You might be wondering what exactly does it mean to surf super weird? The way Johnny explains it, traditionally, there's a lot of emphasis on smoothness in surfing, like one of the most famous surfers of all time, Tom Curran. All of the maneuvers he does feel like they're one long dance, um, and, and he's influenced a lot of people, and, and so there's this sort of like unspoken assumption that what you're trying to do is surf like her in a certain sense. Whereas watching Travers Adler surf, and you should look up a video because he makes it look like a lot of fun, it's totally different. He will like change his stance to be kind of like knees out and duck footed while doing a high line, like just because he wants to, I think. And, and he'll do this like kind of really, really radical bottom bottom turn to top turn and will like totally flop over um and and he's using his upper body in a very conscious way um usually the surfer's trying to subdue their upper body to be as sort of like kind of compact and 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 um unobtrusive as possible and he's like kind of arms arms everywhere um and in a way that feels fresh and surprising and also not unintentional yeah, describing surfing is really, it's really hard. It's its a lot like trying to describe dance. 
he's sort of like letting the ocean and the wave kind of like toss him around and, and sort of doing what he can to, to contain that energy and, and keep it all together. But it feels, he, it's, got this entro- it's got this entropy, like he feels like, it, like he's about to, to lose, to like lose it. Um, sort of all the time, and I really love. I really love that sort of like on on the edge. It's really he's really on the edge of like of being absolutely overpowered by the wave, which is super antithetical to the to the dominate the wave um, approach that most surfers tend to favor. Watching him surf was was one of the first times that I was like, I was like, whoa, you can be different in the water, on the waves. Um, and I guess that we, that's what we would call like a queering of. Um, so he was actually super influential for me in terms of feeling comfortable trying to express myself, um, whatever that self looked like while I was surfing. Johnny says they took that inspiration both into the water and outside of the water. There was a parallel between unlearning so-called surfing norms and unlearning gender norms. Eventually, Johnny ended up starting Benny's Club with their friend Momo Ataniudas, a New York-based surfer and artist. I met Momo um, at one of the paddle outs for Black Lives that the Black Surf Association in the Rockaways hosted. They stayed in touch, and then one day, Momo had an idea. Momo just texted me one day in August and was like, yo, I've got this like character, I've got this image and I've got this idea for like queer and POC surf club, like you wanna help? I was like, hell yeah, I wanna help. Um, I want nothing more than for that to exist. I think like a lot of queer surfers in the last like few years have been really noticing what Jeff Chung has been doing with Unity and and watching sort of skateboarding with this kind of like deep envy. Jeff Chung is an artist who started a printing press and skateboard company called Unity that actively aims to support queer people, trans people, and people of color. Skateboarding, which is also traditionally white and male dominated, has been able to move more easily into a more inclusive culture. Skater Leo Baker is not only sponsored by Nike, but is also the first non-binary skater to be featured in Tony Hawk's Pro Skater video game reboot. You know, and like surfers are looking at that like, we want that. Like, where's, you know, where's that for us? And so Benny's Club was born. Now they organize meetups, teach surfing, and host a Slack channel where queer folks and people of color can find surf buddies, share wave reports, and have community. It's kind of hard to explain, but when you get a group of people who I guess share the same experience on a certain level and, and they, they all come looking to connect and support each other. It's it's this really um, kind of transformative energy. And, and um, when you get, when you take that energy and you bring it into a surf lineup, it's like a, it's like a dream space. Um, and they've been super amazing and the turnout's been really good. And um, yeah, we're really excited to, to keep growing and, and kind of broaden the community and hopefully make um, surf lineups everywhere in this country feel a little less um, straight, aggro, and masculine. 
Johnny says that in their experience, both in California and to a lesser extent on the East Coast, there isn't a lot of self-expression or conversation around gender identity. It is hard enough to get cis women kind of equal status in the lineup. Um, that's basically where a lot of the feminist and, and activism is, and, and it's around trying to allow um, gay surfers to be out kind of publicly on both professionally and not professionally. That's really where the fight is. And, and I hope that we see more activism around gender queerness in the water. And I, I think that's a big part of what Benny's is trying to do. It's, it's pretty exciting. It's pretty, I've never surfed with, knowingly surfed with somebody who's um, gender queer before a Benny's meetup. And it is super special. And since its inception last summer, Benny's club has grown. Here's Todd again. I've seen since I talked to Johnny that there have, have been uh, a couple different pieces online like talking about Benny's Club and you know their social following has grown and hopefully you know they will build a bigger megaphone for those voices so that they don't even need the brands in Orange County or you know the surf media or anyone else they can just kind of control that narrative themselves and really demonstrate that um, that there's a lot more there's a lot more to it than um, what people have traditionally seen from those mainstream outlets. Surf culture could stand to have its hypermasculine style shaken up a bit. And it's like this like macho culture of, you know, everyone wants to do the gnarliest move or everyone wants to get the deepest barrel or, um, you know, you hear in the terminology where, you know, it's all like ripping and hacking and and people talk about like eviscerating waves. It's these kind of like violent terms used for good surfing. You know, one person who who can probably articulate this better than anyone um, is Corey Schumacher, um, because she's given this a lot of thought and, and she thinks that essentially it comes, it comes down to the fact that, you know, surfers aren't football players. Um, you know, surfing is, you're essentially, you're dancing on water. You know, it's this very graceful act. And I think that a lot of male surfers maybe feel a little bit insecure about that. Like they feel like in some way, surfing is is an inherently feminine act. And so in order to kind of cover for that, they look for ways to prove their masculinity or to prove the masculinity of the pursuit of surfing. come back, Corey Schumacher helps us identify the relationship between misogyny and homophobia in surfing and the path forward into a more inclusive future. My name is Corey Schumacher. I'm a Carlsbad City Council member as well as a three-time Women's World Longboard Surfing Champion. That was Corey's voice you heard at the top of the episode. She's best known as a world champion longboarder, but she was also the number one U.S. female shortboarder on the 1994 and 1996 U.S. team for the ISA Junior Championships. She won the 1995 Pan American Championships. She's actually won a few too many competitions to list, but maybe even more impressive than her surfing resume is the strong voice and advocacy she's cultivated since retiring from professional surfing. I was raised up in, in norms that I couldn't see. 
at first. It was when I was, um, you know, single digits that I started to learn about, um, you know, lesbians and surfing and, and how my parents and some other surfers felt about them. Both Corey's parents were surfers too. Her mom surfed WISA, the Women's International Surf Association. So they talked a lot about women in surfing and how lesbian surfers were holding back the rest of the women in surfing. Also being a young woman in, in the water, um, all of the norms associated with where my place was in the lineup were, again, they were completely invisible to me. And so what I ended up experiencing as I, I grew up into the person I was becoming was some tension and a lot of tension. And the, I pushed back against the feelings that I was having, which had been internalized. But when she was in her early 20s, Corey says she hit the point where she had to make a choice. I either reject the things inside of me that are causing me pain, or I reject myself. And so I started to go through this process of coming out and of um, accepting me for who, I, for who I was, but I had to do it separate from surfing. I actually moved up to San Francisco and really um, intentionally wanted to be anonymous. Corey says it wasn't until she was in her late 20s and early 30s that she really found the vocabulary to talk about who she was and her experience as a queer woman in surfing. Plus, I'd already gone through this um, sort of political transformation where I had started to work within the, the political activist, the activist space in the, in the city of San Diego after 9-11. She decided to re-enter the world of surfing this time on her own terms, and vie for another world championship so she could build a platform where she could bring all the things she had learned together into the open. That's when she won her third world title. And the reason I did it really had to do with the fact that I, I didn't want another generation to pass who had to make the same choice that I did and be on the precipice of a lot of pain and a lot of hurt and, and a lot of um, repression. Corey had also fallen in love with the woman who would become her wife. It, it really was, was around this whole time where, where there was a convergence of, my, of myself and I wanted to give it back to the world of surfing in a way that would redefine what it meant to be a surfer because I didn't like the way that 1980s had defined being a surfer specifically for um, men and women alike um, because I felt it was very exploitative and didn't respect who we could be as surfers in a rapidly changing uh, world. There's a common thread between misogyny and homophobia in surfing, and that connection is toxic and fragile masculinity. One place where it's relatively obvious to see is in the difference in sponsorships between male and female surfers. Here's Todd again. A male surfer might be depicted as, you know, doing some kind of crazy maneuver on a wave or um, getting barreled. Women, on the other hand, were often just accessories for male surfers or sex objects. And, you know, I, I've actually heard from uh, one female pro surfer that there was an instance where they were on a catalog shoot and, you know, they, they went surfing and the, the brand was shooting images of their surf session. And then they came in and the photographer asked them to hand their boards to these female swimwear models who were they going to pose with their surfboards. It was the early 1990s when Corey started to get involved with professional surf brands. 
Quicksilver launched their sister brand, Roxy, with a sponsorship of Lisa Anderson, the first female surfer to ever be on the cover of Surfer Magazine. And while Roxy may have been an opportunity to give more attention to women surfers, it ended up doing some damage. You had female surfers who were actually trying to fit themselves into a bikini model mold, but they were at the time trying to use female surfers. So there was this tension in the early 90s between what a female surfer actually should look like, and it led to what we called roxorexia, where there were female athletes who were going through severe, um, very noticeable periods of anorexia to try to fit themselves into a pre-1990s um, uh, uh, frame or narrative of what the, the female surfer should look like. So Roxy would um, sponsor women who weren't the best surfers, but looked the best in the water. At the time, Roxy was the only surf brand sponsoring women. So Corey says there were tons of super talented young female surfers all vying for the same spot and consistently losing out to the quote unquote hottest surfers rather than the best surfers. They were lovely human beings, but they were not the best surfers. And so the best surfers were, um, were not what you would see highlighted. The result of that was wide-reaching. Not only did it bring down the level of surfing among the most talked-about female surfers, it also bred a lot of unhealthy competition. Sometimes society and media likes to frame like catfights amongst women, but at the end of the day, it's really the, the environment that we're placed within, which is this, this feeling of a sense of lack. Like if there's only one spot at the table... We then have to be hyper-competitive with each other to try to get that spot. So, yeah, there was a lot, of, uh, a lot of tension among the women, which made it really difficult for us to band together and push back against uh, uh, the system that was clearly negatively impacting all of us. Consistently, surf media gave the most privilege, money, visibility, and resources to women who weren't the best surfers, but were the best at playing to the camera. There was one specific example that Corey thought of that happened back in 1999 at a competition with a rival surfer. She ended up dancing on the beach. So she had this whole, you know, she had a, a sarong on and her headphones on and she was doing this twirly dance before the final. And um, she ended up getting full spread, like a full multiple page spread in the surf magazine. And um, none of her surfing got in there. So I was coming of age as a professional athlete in surfing during a really interesting transitional time um, in, in women's surfing. And it took women's surfing a really long time to grow out of that. As a professional surfer, seeing what you saw, seeing you know people getting media attention for silly things, did you ever consider or feel the need that you should just conform to stereotypes of the industry and what would get you sponsorships and attention? Was there ever a moment where you're like, well, I guess I just need to do that? Yeah, that's um, where I almost broke myself, where the industry almost broke me. You know, it's, it's never the one thing that somebody asks you to do. It's all of these small little things that you try to, to conform to that ultimately end up either completely breaking your soul or, um, or causing, causing you to walk away um, or causing you to turn around and, and push back and change things. Um, so I did try to fit myself into, into that stereotype. Um, for, for a long time and became very unhappy and very, um, um, very, you know, hurt. I think what that taught me about living your truth um, 
has really fueled everything that I do with every choice in my life. Um, you either stand down and be silent and bow your head, or you stand up, push back, and say, this isn't right. So, and I have to thank the surf industry for helping to shape um, who I've become. Who Corey has become is an outspoken advocate and an elected city council person in Carlsbad, a suburb of San Diego, California. When the community in Carlsbad asked me to run for city council, um, it really took me by surprise. I didn't, I didn't feel like I was somebody who had the background to, uh, to run for a government position or be an elected official. But she got some guidance from the now-retired Democratic Congressman Barney Frank the first member of Congress to come out voluntarily. He challenged her reluctance to enter the world of politics. And this was really a, a poignant moment for me because he, he basically challenged sort of this part of me that really liked to stand up on a platform and talk about what needed to be changed without getting inside of systems to really enact the changes that that could fundamentally shift policy at a, at a larger level. Um, the way that he framed it was a question of whether or not I wanted to remain outside of the institutions where policy is made, trampling the grass, or step inside, get my hands dirty, and see some real change done. That decision was like stepping back into the world of surfing, a desire to change political spaces just like I had tried to change the idea of what it meant to be a surfer. And the work continues. It's a, a rough, rough road, but it's not that different from the systems that I had experienced um, within the world of surfing. The same challenges, homophobia, misogyny, um, patriarchy, uh, you know, um, these, these, these systems, these mechanisms that, that oppress and consume um, people for profit are present, of course, in the world around us. And it's just a, a, larger, a larger system to take on. So that's, uh, that work continues. Corey's political work focuses on climate change and social justice. And while the surf industry is changing for the better, it still has a long way to go. Here's Todd. Surfing as a culture excludes people at its own peril. You know, the industry has like really struggled in recent years. And I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, that alienation and, and you know, just not being able to build bridges to actual surfers and what their, you know, what their life experiences are like. Do you feel like that's progressing and changing or that it is kind of stuck? I think it's definitely progressing and changing, but I think that it's it's doing so very slowly. It feels almost like surf culture has been like begrudgingly dragged into the modern era in terms of how people talk about these issues. And I think that a lot of that just stems from the fact that, you know, the surf industry has always been run by white dudes straight white dudes living in Southern California and especially in Orange County, that's kind of the seat of the surfing industry. And Orange County is obviously like very socially conservative. And um, it's just this kind of little bubble that isn't really 
representative of the wider surfing experience. So what can the surfing industry do to move forward? I mean, what I would like to see them change is to just just have the brands become more inclusive. And I think that that's something that they could do immediately. I want to see more of the diverse storytelling really highlighted. We're, um, we're seeing a lot of that emerging. And I, I just, I want to see the full, I want to see the full lineup, um, so to speak, uh, all of the stories that exist within surfing. There are names of people who are doing amazing work in surfing to make it more inclusive. And, you know, these brands can easily just contact these people. I mean, it's never been easier to kind of like reach people and to, and to you know, to storytell and to create content around um, interesting characters. And, you know, there's nothing stopping them from reaching out to these people and, you know, elevating their voices and making that a larger part of the culture. And I, I mean, you know, if a big brand wanted to do that, they could do that tomorrow. Corey says she also wants to see the surf community get more radical and more political. We have to jump in with everything we have to save our oceans. And I believe very powerfully that the that surfers can be some of the most in, important voices that we have for climate justice. So I really want to see surfing get past this whole idea that that it's just an escapist, hedonistic pleasure zone, and it can actually be radicalized politically to um, to push back against the, um, the 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 type of globalization that is uh, consuming our planet. I want to see more coordination and collaboration. And again, it's it's these shared activities that we do, like surfing or shared joys, that really become the the way that civil society is able to, to come together to think together about how to solve these problems. And we can't think together in a reactive mode. We have to learn how to be together, like lineups, for instance. Like, you go paddle out into a lineup, um, you're guaranteed to paddle next to somebody who voted for Donald Trump or who voted for Biden. But everybody's out there um, and we find a rhythm. We find a rhythm, we, we share waves, and um, because everybody is invested in having uh, an experience in their relationship with the ocean that is harmonious, um, they there's a, there's a shared activity that becomes the center focus rather than conflict, which which gets pushed to the side um, in order for the pursuit of, 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 the, of the joy and the play that is the main reason that you're there. So centering that as a way of coordinating and collaborating rather than this, this sort of um, race to the bottom or race to the top with power, race to the bottom with, with profiteering, um, we, we need more people who are committed to that both at the local and the global level. Honestly, it's a bummer that after 60 years of publication, with a progressive editor like Todd at the helm, Surfer Magazine went down. For the first time in its history this year, they endorsed a presidential candidate. Sure, there was some backlash. There's a general rule to keep politics out of the water. But as Johnny said in an interview with ID, what that really means is don't make any of the straight, white, old men consider things that they don't want to consider. One thing is very clear. With groups like Benny's Club growing, work from artists like Stephen Milner, activists like Corey, and the rest of the queer powerhouses in the mainstream and on the fringe, 
the tide is moving toward a lineup that more accurately reflects the beauty and diversity of this country as a whole. Thanks for listening. Pride is a production of Straw Hut Media. If you like the show, leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're tuning in from. Share us with your friends, subscribe, and follow us on Instagram and Twitter, at Pride, and on Facebook, at Pride Podcast. You can follow me, at Levi Chambers. Pride is produced by me, Levi Chambers, Maggie Bowles, and Ryan Tillotson. Edited by Sebastian Alcala. I remember being out in the water in San Diego and feeling like, okay, this is going to, this was the big one. Like I'm going to, I'm going to ride this one. <laughs> How does, do you have a better idea of which one's the one? See, Ryan, I think that's queer intuition and you don't have it. And that's why <laughs> That must be it. I think that is, you need to bottom for the ocean and then come back to us. Uh.